Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and in 2008, shortly after Obama was elected president, I was at a conference where I talked to two of Obama's top staffers, and I raised to them that I thought that one of the biggest contradictions in politics was the size and importance of the Latino community on the one hand, and the lack of investment from progressives in the Latino community on the other. One of the Obama staffers got very defensive and tried to explain what they had been doing, etc. The other had the sophistication and maturity to agree and to say that that was something we had to focus on. I maintain that that remains one of the central contradictions in this country, certainly in the progressive side and where we're going. And you hear a lot in political commentary and articles and in the media about Latinos and where their allegiances are, and this is a cause of concern, but I would say you still see very little investment in action in that regard. And so this remains a very compelling and pressing challenge, particularly heading the 2024 election, but really for the next several years, uh, if not several decades in this country. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're joined by one of the key architects of building Latino political and community power within this country. Someone who's been really at the epicenter of a lot of these efforts for a number of years and is doing very exciting work on multiple fronts. And so I'm very excited for this conversation. And joining me for this conversation, as always, is my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. We are recording on Halloween, although when this episode airs, it will have been a couple days ago, but I assume you guys will have had big Halloween plans. And then do you want to introduce our guest? We definitely have awesome Halloween plans. It's that time of the year. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to basically Halloween. We call it, I call it the whole week. You know, we're just going to celebrate the whole week. And I'm really excited to welcome our guest today. Our guest today is Stephanie Valencia. Stephanie is a national leader at the Nexus of Politics, Technology, and Leadership Development. She's the co-founder of Equis, an organization that invests in leaders and ideas to create a more powerful Latino electorate. Equis, by the way, as I've been told, is how the letter X is pronounced in Spanish, and that's partly why Equis Labs, which is spelled E-Q-U-I-S Labs, is um, a play on kind of words and sounds. Maybe I'll, Stephanie will explain more later. I thought that was really neat. Stephanie was part of a small group of advisors who served President Obama in senior roles throughout his presidential campaigns and both terms. Among her roles, she served as an aide to the president at the White House Office of Public Engagement and as deputy Latino vote director on the 2008 Obama campaign. In addition to all that, she's the co-author of West Wingers, stories from the dream chasers, change makers and hope creators inside the Obama White House. And she's co-host of the podcast Finding 46 about the road to the White House in 2020. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here, Stephanie. I want to um, share also with the listeners that is you're in New Mexico now, and you're from Mexico originally, is that right? Mm-hmm. So I'm from New Mexico now and just moved back uh, about two years ago after being away for almost 20 years. Wow. And so it's really wow. one of these fascinating behind the scenes things about n- national politics and these little, these insider groupings. And so for good and not as good, but for a long time in the national politics, certainly at the Senate level, there's been kind of what I, at least some people call this Montana mafia. And so you had Senator John Tester mm-hmm. and then the staffers who had worked mm-hmm. with him were in these very key mm-hmm. positions around democratic national politics. But Montana is not that representative of state. And so I would say it was a challenge. But there's also kind of this New Mexico mafia people don't really actually know about. Right? <laughs> so Ben Ray Lujan, who was the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee for a number of years. He was from New Mexico. 
he had a whole team of people and then now here we have Stephanie who's going to also continue to work from that from that phase. So we're just really glad that uh, we could both reconnect. Well, funny story about Ben Ray and I is Ben Ray and I really grew up together. Oh, really? Um, in politics, his dad was the Speaker of the House in New Mexico for many, many years. Um, and, you know, he obviously followed in his father's footsteps in statewide office, but we literally were teenagers together. Oh, wow. So the fact that he is a United States Senator, you know, we're obviously still very close friends, really kind of like family. And it's just funny to now see him as United States Senator when we've seen each other as teenagers right, and right. grown up as teenagers since teenagers together. So anyway, but there is a definitely a mafia here and both that have focused on New Mexico politics. And New Mexico has been a real interesting place in that, you know, New Mexico was uh, the original bellwether um, before the rest of the West became blue. Um, I'm just giving my quick pitch on New Mexico and its importance because, you know, as it's maintained its blueness, it has also kind of been taken for granted because everybody just thinks New Mexico is fine now. The truth is, I think kind of in both ways, like as, as it kind of led the pack for becoming a blue state, it's also just like a very interesting um, canary in the coal mine about what's happening in the West, um, because a lot of like what happens here happens before it happens in, say, like Arizona or Nevada. And so it's just interesting to kind of be back home and have a pulse for things like where are Hispanic men trending or where is this kind of sense around gun safety or the pandemic and small business stuff. It percolates in a very different way here that I think is kind of indicative for how the rest of the West ends up going. Right. So I want to have you share a little bit about your, your background and journey. And so I think that, mm -hmm. you know, as I've, you know, shared with people over the years, I mean, I've been blessed to move in multiple circles and multiple settings and I've been in different donor circles and different political circles. I mentioned you know, at this meeting with this Obama staffers. But what's been interesting is it feels like not exactly the Forrest Gump thing, but you've kind of been in each of these places <laughs> in terms of like you were, you know, those the Obama mm -hmm. piece and then there was the kind of the Silicon Valley tech, you know, grouping that was going on. You were kind of over there and then mm -hmm. like also the current work. So can you just share with folks how you kind of get involved in politics in the first place, and then how did you wind up in the Obama administration? Yeah, well, it's a funny story because I did grow up, you know, several hours south of here, close to the U.S.-Mexico border. And long story short, I grew up in a community that looked like people that looked just like me. If you're from New Mexico, like everybody is Hispanic, basically. And so it wasn't until I really went to college on the East Coast and in Boston where I realized like I was different. And when I realized I was not one of many, but one of a few. And that was a real like eye-opening experience. And then I went to the Latino student group in um, at my university and they weren't eating beans and tortillas. They were eating plantains and black beans <laughs> and they were mostly Caribbean Latinos. And I didn't realize I was part of a bigger family. It's really where I established and identified and kind of tapped into my Latino identity, my Latina identity. I lived in Central America and Mexico City for a little while while I was in college as well, and then kind of realized I was part of an even bigger community. And where I grew up in New Mexico, I'm a 13th generation New Mexican. Um, my family traces their roots back to, you know, the Apaches who were defending their land here alongside Geronimo to the Spaniards who came to this and conquered this area. So New Mexico is a, is a has a very complicated history of which almost every New Mexican, if they're honest about their history, has a mix, right, of, of who they are. 
And um, so I didn't, my family did not immigrate to this country. There's a saying here in New Mexico, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Um, And just by the grace of God, we ended up on this side of the border. And literally within 10 miles of where I grew up was where the Gadsden Purchase was signed that established the U.S.-Mexico boundary and the purchase of the West, right? So, you know, literally where I grew up and where I spent most of my life was part of that story. So again, I just was kind of radicalized in college and came into my identity in that way. And when I graduated, I, um, and this gets into how I got into the Obama world, it was 2004 and I had an opportunity to do a fellowship program in DC that allowed me to pick any organization in DC. And I had an option to go work in the United States Senate for Hillary Clinton at the Steering and Outreach Committee in the Senate or go work at the Washington office on Latin America. And all I wanted to do at that time was to go evangelize about the US-Latin America relationship and the disparity that existed in that relationship. But the Washington office on Latin America never called me back. So I ended up in this career in politics by it being my fallback, working for Senator Clinton at the time, who was senator from New York, and ultimately, you know, worked for her for a little over a year and spent more time in the House and the Senate as a political staffer um, and a press secretary. And it was in 2007, late 2007, that I had an opportunity to take a job with either the Obamas or the Clintons. And a lot of her team thought I was going to go work for them because I had worked for her previously, but something about President Obama really tapped my soul. And so I made a very tough choice and ended up working for President Obama and worked for him on the 2008 campaign as Deputy Latino Vote Director and went from there to the transition team and the transition team to the White House where I led a lot of the Latino engagement, worked a lot on issues like the housing crisis, but also on immigration and spent you know most of my 20s and half of my 30s in the White House and in the administration, I ended up working for the Secretary of Commerce and getting a very you know different point of view of working in government around the world, advocating for U.S. companies around the world. And then I went and worked at Google. And from my time at Google, this was a time when big tech was still exciting and new and interesting. And ultimately, you know, that translated. You know, then Donald Trump was elected president, and I was like, I can't be in a company right now. Google, in my view at that time, was kind of shifting gears to really try to align with Trump. They knew Trump was skeptical of them. And so he they were trying very hard to be a company that he could work with. And I just could not stand to be in an environment like that, especially when my community was under attack. That was, you know, when we were being called rapists and murderers and he was trying to rescind DACA and all of these things like the world really felt on fire to the people who I had been working with and alongside the previous 10 years. And so I stepped out and uh, in 2018 went in and advised a number of people who were in Silicon Valley, as you mentioned, Steve. And, you know, it was very interesting because obviously that everybody was engaged in politics in 2018 after 2016, and there was a huge push. And the thing that was really apparent to me was it had been 10 years since the Obama campaign. And here, Latinos were still not a part of the conversation in these rooms right. of, you know, um, lots of resources moving around, you know, Latinos, and uh, the same tactics were being used. There wasn't like a lot of new research or understanding about Latinos. Um, we were very much still in the same place we had been 10 years prior. And so when 2018 was over and that election cycle had completed, 
you know, had the opportunity to stay in the role that I was in, but I also really felt called to start something that was filling a gap that I had continued to see over time, which was this gap around a deeper understanding of Latinos in this country, new and innovative ways to reach and engage them, and continuing to build a leadership bench that would carry it forward because we're at a moment in time where coming back, Charlene, to what you said at the top, where Latinos are really the X factor. Um, that's why we named ourselves Equis, is because Latinos are the X factor in politics and society in this country moving forward. There is no denying that Latinos are changing the face of this country, how they relate to their identity, their sense of belonging in this country will really matter to how they participate in politics, how they participate in civic society, how they participate culturally and economically in this country. It's not just a, a conversation about voting for us. That's very important. Like our job at Equis is not to make Latinos democratic robots. Our job at Equis is to help create a better understanding of who Latinos are and help to create conditions so that we can shift the notion of our own sense of belonging in this country. And we believe that if we are able to shift that notion of identity and belonging, Latinos are going to show up and vote. Latinos are going to show up at their kids' school board meeting. Latinos are going to show up and, you know, economically in this country, and they will be a force to be reckoned with, and people will feel accountable to this community for which I would argue um, we have been invisible and no politician, no president has felt accountable to this community. And we want to shift that. Stephanie, I'm so glad you um, were talking about the gap and how I think you started you basically touch upon how you came to co-found Equis Labs. So I guess giving the listeners some context, you founded Equis Lab in 2019 and it's to shed light on the complexities of the Latino community as it was growing. So can you tell us more about Equis Lab? What does it do? What's its mission? And what, I know you said that the goal is not to make them, what did you call it, democratic robots? But um, you, you know, came coming from the democratic sphere and being progressive, what was the impetus and your own inspiration uh, and those who, you know, worked to build Equis Lab what did you feel that was missing from the progressive ecosystem and the landscape that led you to create Equis Labs? Well, the primary thing I think we felt was missing was really in-depth research. And not just, you know, what we would see is like, here's a poll here, here's a poll there. There was no real longitudinal or in-depth place beyond Pew. Pew Hispanic, like, has always been the kind of cornerstone research hub of research, you know, looking at the Latino community. And ultimately, we wanted to create a place that also had a political lens. You know, Pew is not political at all. So we wanted to create more of a political lens and also more of like a societal lens. So again, we don't mm. just do political research, polling and analysis. We've done some very interesting projects for, um, you know, entertainment and cultural focused uh, research projects to try to understand does a movie that centers a Puerto Rican cast going to resonate with Mexican Americans that are two thirds of the Latino community in the United States, like trying to understand where people are relating to their identity, not just as it relates to politics and who they're voting for, but also like their choices around entertainment and seeing themselves on the screen. So again, creating that depth and longitudinal sense, I would argue that now we have probably one of the biggest resources 
versus um, who Latino voters are in this country since basically, you know, 2019, which obviously we plan to do this for a long time. So we continue to aggregate that data. But the more polling and research that we do around this community, the more dimensional understanding we have about them and can see trends over time. The other big piece is around experimentation and innovation. So looking at things like how do we use WhatsApp as an organizing tool for campaigns and candidates, but also Mm -hmm. for companies who are trying to reach Latinos. WhatsApp is ubiquitous among Latinos, immigrants and non-immigrant Latinos alike. You know, we all use WhatsApp. And WhatsApp is this place that, you know, has become, you know, thought of as like the, you know, wild, wild west for disinformation. But a lot of really great information gets shared via WhatsApp, like Bad Bunny his last album release he did via whatsapp so you've got like a sense of like how people are connecting in without going and creating a new app or a new thing to try to build community around go to the places where people already are the other one in addition to that is youtube and youtube is another platform that latinos are consuming news and information on youtube as a primary source of news and information than the general population is which means that In addition to watching CNN, they're probably going to watch a YouTube video from a random influencer who may or may not actually be a journalist and getting more information on topics like inflation or the supply chain or what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Israel, like what is happening in the world and trying to understand their place in it. Latinos are consuming lots of kind of information in these places. And yet the tactics we were seeing from people who were trying to reach and engage and understand Latinos were very static. Like they were still trying to just reach people on radio and television. And those are still fine mediums, but like ignoring these other places or just focusing on advertising on those places aren't going to help people actually resonate or reach or persuade Latinos. And the last speech is around leadership and bench building and making sure that the people who are in positions of authority and power for strategy and resource allocation are equipped with the research and the tactics to spend it wisely and to invest wisely and to think kind of about this longer term trajectory of what we're actually trying to do, which I'll wrap by saying that, like, I think both parties have let our community down. I think Republicans have vilified our community and played games with the issue of immigration, have pretended to be serious actors on the issue of immigration and have really played rope-a-dope with the community and with Democrats on it. I think Democrats have failed the community and using very lackluster approaches to an investment um, to reaching the community and a very late investment and also have not prioritized immigration. There's a lot on the issue of immigration that, um, you know, and Latinos occupy the very diverse spectrum of immigration. We have to be very honest about that, which is you have Latinos who are for greater border security and you have Latinos who are for more progressive uh, legalization um, programs. And there are things that kind of unite both of those, which is, um, you know, streamlining and certainty and process and security. Um, But at the end of the day, like both parties have, in my view, let down our community. And so I do think that, you know, our job or what we view part of our job is to ensure that we are creating a set of resources and research and tactics that will help people be smarter about it. I just want to, for the listeners, lift up a couple of things that you had said to put a more of an exclamation point on it. I think they're very important to understand the contemporary politics. And so in, even you're talking about your own bio and your journey and your family and how you're 
your family never moved. And that's I, that's interesting because I do, and I've tried to focus on how the if this con, you know this phrase the border you know we didn't cross the border the border crossed us. It's, in a lot of ways, it's um, metaphorical to a certain extent, like a rallying cry. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever actually met anybody who it's actually literally true for. Right, and that you can actually <laughs> say. So that puts a whole different frame on this whole understanding immigration in terms of going back where you came from, in terms of who are the people coming over the border. So I just want to really emphasize that in terms of the, the importance of that framework in terms of really understanding the nature of uh, ultimately this question of whose country you know is this, who belongs in, it and who doesn't. And then the other piece is the piece around the the importance around research and analysis within progressive politics and progressive social change overall. And it's frankly been shocking to me how little that major spending decisions are driven by data and analysis and research and information. Right. And actually, my father-in-law sent this email back in 2004 when they were first starting the big political money spending pieces. They were coming to him for Entity America's Coming Together, which spent like 100 plus million dollars. And he sent an email saying, are we really going to spend $100 million without a plan, right? And so the lack of information, research, and data, and then we've tried to look, lean into that on the democracy and color side, and I've done it myself, right? So then in 2018, so my favorite story of 2018 is that there was a couple major donors wanted to move money, flip the house, went to the main super PAC for the house, uh, house majority PAC. We had suggested, uh, I think it was then, I think it was California 12 before redistricting, it was David Valadeo's district. It had been a close race. There's a lot. It's a majority Latino district. And it's like if you boost Latino turnout, we could actually have an impact there. Latinos in California vote two-thirds Democratic. House Majority PAC said there are a lot of Latinos in that district, and they don't vote in midterms. So that's probably not a good district for us to focus on. And our polling shows that it's not promising. And I was like, it's two-thirds Latino. Who are you polling? <laughs> this is the first issue. And then we pushed back and we got them to move money to uh, Communities for a New California, which had roots in the United Farm Workers Movement. And they had 30,000 phone calls, door knocks, contacted people, won that seat by 800 votes. That's like one of my favorite stories of 2018, but it shows the lack of data that undergirds these major, major decisions around how lots of money it gets spent. So in terms of you, you guys leaning into the data and research and analysis, what are you concluding that progressives are getting right and wrong about how to engage with and think about Latino voters? I'll say a couple of things. I think the first is progressives have gotten away for too long, and we're starting to see a shift in this of thinking Latinos in a binary, which is you're either GOTV target or you are persuasion target. And it's actually kind of a lot more complicated than that. Latinos are there, you know, there's a range, right? There's a universe of Latinos that are very strong Democrats that like no matter what are, and the challenge with that group in many ways is that your persuasion isn't persuading them to be on your side, but persuading them their vote matters enough that they, we like to say persuading them off the couch, mm-hmm. like getting them out the door to go and vote. Like you're, that's actually mm-hmm. the persuasion is that it's worth their time. It's worth the effort for them to go and vote. And then there's this like persuasion universe that isn't like your typical like persuasion universe um, in the same way you might think about non-Hispanic white voters. And this is like what we call kind of conflict voters. These are people who are, yeah, I really like Democrats 
stats, but like the economy is really doing well and Trump did really well with the stock market and my and my 401k was doing really well under Trump and you know he's a really strong leader. So like this like on an issue mm. or two like they are if if like the the societal conditions are such that they feel like there is cover to vote for a Republican like they will do it. And that is where like we call this like the conflicted voter. They're like, yeah, Republicans just like aren't great or they're kind of extremists, but like the economy, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's like, you know, the place where narratives around like the economy and Democrats kind of reframing themselves and repositioning themselves, you know, really matters. As Steve, as you kind of just said, like allocation of resources around a campaign are determined by data, polling and voter data. And one of our big projects that we took on in the last couple of years was really looking at the voter files and trying to understand like how race models were built, how people were being identified and targeted as Hispanic, as Asian, as black, and trying to just like really trying to sharpen some of these voter models. What I will say is last year and some of that work that our team was doing with one of the major data vendors in the space is we uncovered and discovered 2 million untagged Latino voters nationally. Wow. Which when wow. you think about that, and 4 That's million huge. voters That's of huge. color, more, more, you know, voters of color broadly, 2 million Latinos specifically. And that's huge because those are 2 million people for which campaigns were not taking into account them in a universe. And the truth of the matter is about Latinos, because we are a younger electorate, where, right. you know, mm -hmm. our population growth is being driven by people who are actually being born here in the United States, not by people mm -hmm. who are coming. Huge misconception mm -hmm. about, right. um, exactly. about how population growth is happening. We're younger electorate. We just are. And so the more we ignore and try to ignore opportunities to engage new people into the electorate, the more we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have an 18-year-old or even a 25-year-old has the opportunity to vote and they've never voted and we're not talking to them because we don't we only talk to the people who turn out every election. You're just talking to an older and older share of the electorate rather than people who are casting kind of a wider net. And and then once you cast that wider net, being smart enough to understand who are those people that need the kind of persuasion to just get them out the door to go vote because you know they're going to vote for your person. And then where are the people that like need that kind of that conflicted voter that needs more of like a traditional kind of persuasion approach, even though that persuasion approach might be more nuanced, right? Like uh, in terms of like the issues that they care about. So I just, that I think is kind of what we have, the like research and dimensionality that has been missing. There's, there's this just like people want things in campaigns black and white, right? Mm -hmm. Like, who do I talk to? Who do I not talk to? Who are right. my people? Who are not my people? And the truth is, it really takes a lot longer. The yeah. last thing I'll say is like, one of the things, Steve, that we've learned and a huge learning for me is like out of 2018, there was a lot of conversation of like, how do we optimize relational organizing? Mm -hmm. How do you optimize relationships? And I think like the thing we've all learned around COVID and like now being in remote work, is you can't like yes you can use whatsapp to reach the masses to communicate kind of broad messages and as my whatsapp notification goes off and you also have to be thinking about the one-on-one -on -one relation and also how like outside of a GOTV cycle how people's views and values are being shaped by platforms like youtube 
where they're consuming news mm. every single day about what's happening in the world. And you have entities like PragerU who are out there talking about lots of different approaches to different issues. They're talking about immigration. They're talking about abortion. And this is all being done from a nonprofit kind of C3 perspective because they're talking about issues. There's no political advocacy. But that's happening year round. And it's shaping people's views and values year round. So we think about engagement of these communities in a strictly kind of like GOTV cycle sometimes or in the context of an election when the truth is like people's views and values are being shaped in lots of different places, right. 365, yeah. 24-7. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask, turn a little bit to the Latino media network piece, right? And so it's been very, to me, it's one of the more exciting and promising developments on the progressive landscape overall. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been part of these conversations about progressive infrastructure for really almost 20 years now. What was it? Real networks. And people are old enough to remember that. So Rob Glazer started before there was even, that was like the early video, like the early 2000s that was gonna be on the internet. And then should there be, you know, progressive TV station? Al Gore bought current TV, but didn't really use it as a progressive vehicle. I remember being part of the early days of Air America Radio and that there was discussion is, you know, donor circles around investing in creating Air America Radio, which did kind of was the platform for Rachel Maddow to, to become more of an national figure. But you guys have done something that was quite revolutionary, from my analysis and understanding, right? So you and Latino Media Network co-founder Jess morales Riquetto, you bought 18 Spanish-speaking radio stations across the country for $60 million and launched a new Latino media company. So it's one of, if not probably, the largest acquisitions of radio stations by a Latino-owned and operated uh, company. So can you talk about that the decision to do that as a focus, and then what you guys are, what the goals and the plans and the vision is for Latino Media Network. I think um, a lot of people are familiar with the saying, culture eats politics for breakfast, or something along those lines. <laughs> and the truth is, is that when we think about the impact of, you know, how we can actually reach and engage Latinos in a real way, you know, the real way is like, like I said, going to the places where people already are, YouTube, radio, WhatsApp, radio is another medium that like, well, terrestrial radio, everybody's like, why are you guys buying radio? Isn't radio on the decline? Yes, for mainstream radio, terrestrial radio, radio stations is on the decline among Spanish language radio and like listeners and consumers, it is steady, if not increasing. So long as people are mm. kind of coming to this country, they are looking for community when they get here. And they're looking for that community and they often find that community on their local Spanish language radio station. And so again, if our goal here is to shift our notion, our community's notion about our own sense of influence, identity, and belonging, which we believe will shift other behaviors beyond that. Radio is a way to do that. Mass communication is a way to do that without having to go build something new. I think, Steve, like one of the challenges around some of those previous efforts was that they were trying to build something new and very specifically around a progressive mm -hmm. brand and progressive label. And part of what we're trying to center here is Lati being Latino first mm -hmm. um, and that we are trying to inform and inspire our community um, with the stuff that they're looking for. 
music and other informational programming around issues they care about, whether that be healthcare or what's happening in their community locally. A lot of what has happened with these stations over time has, uh, you know, as Univision, um, Televisa, Univision now, technically not a Hispanic-owned company, just so that we're clear and part of why this is the biggest, like we are one of really? the, if not oh. the biggest. Um, yeah, just like small note I here. You know, it started as a Hispanic-owned company many, many decades ago, um, but is now owned by a private equity fund in New York City. You have Telemundo, which is also seen as the largest Latino-serving media brand Mm -hmm. owned by NBCU. So we Mm -hmm. are probably, given our footprint, one of the largest, if not the largest, Hispanic and not only Hispanic, Latina-owned and operated media companies. Our C-suite is almost entirely Latina operated. Our CEO is Latina. Our co-founders, two co-founders, myself and Jess are Latina. And our chief revenue officer is also Latina. So we, you know, are really trying to build a company that, you know, um, reflects our values um, in that regard. But again, all that is to say, we want to be the place and we're, we're starting with radio. We will be a multi-platform audio company providing news and information and content, current events, content, music to this community and giving them what they want and being a place for them both locally and nationally. You know, eventually we will, we're starting with these 10 markets, 18 radios, 17 radio stations and 18 in 10 markets spanning from the Central Valley of California and Fresno to Los Angeles to Las Vegas and McAllen, Miami, Chicago. One of the things I'm most excited about in some ways about these stations is, you know, in McAllen and Fresno and Las Vegas, you know, we have some of the best performing stations in those markets on FM. It's a mix of FM and AM radio stations is improving our musical formats and giving people what they want to listen to, whether it's regional Mexican or reggaeton and like, you know, more of a pop focus Peso Pluma, Bad Bunny, to the regional musical acts of like McAllen, Texas. Here in New Mexico, there's very you know specific New Mexico regional music that like I would be playing if I owned a station here. To Miami, where it's a very you know Cuban American centered station that's centered around the Cuban exile community, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and it's been around that long, Radio Mambi. So, Mm. you know, our goal is, again, to make sure we kind of get back to the local roots of these communities for which we serve, ensuring we're giving people news and information that they need locally, and again, providing information and inspired content that's going to help people and help our community navigate, you know, what's happening in the world and their place in it and inspire and inform so that we can shift our own sense of influence, identity, and belonging. That's so incredible. I'm just taking that all in. And I'm just reminded again of like the breadth and depth and diversity of the population that we term the Latino population. It's just so, so rich and diverse. I I wanted to ask you a quick question. And if you don't have these numbers handy, just we can just skip it. But my mind during this conversation has been trying to remember because between the two books that I've helped Steve on, I know those figures we have in the books and our research. But remind me again, what percentage of the population more or less is percentage-wise Latino? Roughly 20% mm-hmm. of the U.S. population that's, that's is Latino. That's in- incredible. I think just people just 
tend to forget that. It's a, such a And that's rapidly, rapidly percentage. rising. Totally. Well, it's rapidly rising because Latinos, when you look at who's driving population growth of this country and ultimately who's driving growth in the electorate, it is Hispanics in this country. And when you look at Latinos' relationship to politics, I would say that, you know, you've got like this population that is the swingiest, you know, driving growth of population mm. in the electorate. We are the swingiest part of the electorate. If you look from 2016 to 2020, there was some steadiness, you know, in 2022. Um, and there's like red wave that didn't really happen in 2022. And then you have half of Latinos, 50% of Latinos are opting out of participating from politics and elections mm. every election cycle. When you have wow. black voters turning out 60 to 65%, white voters turning 70 to 70%, right? So, so you know, obviously, the more rapidly Latinos are growing and the more a share of electorate is, the more physical number, raw number of Latinos you need to vote to change that 50% number. It's not like that number is static. But, you know, it's so it's a huge and tall order to think about what is it actually going to take in order to you know, shift that 50% number by a marginal one, two, three, four, or five percent. It's going to take mm. a lot. Yeah. I want to. But the payoff is big. Ask a quick question as we're getting you know, towards the end of the time. But you, you talked about the changing media landscape that exists out here. And so it's a fascinating thing from a progressive standpoint. Like I said, I've been part of all these different things, people talking about this, which should we look at this platform or that platform? It's not irrelevant to me that you have people from legacy media um, like Trevor Noah and Rachel Maddow leaving those perches to do these other pieces. So I'm curious how you guys look at these other media platforms. You mentioned YouTube a number of times. Are you thinking about trying to be involved in those spaces as well with the media work you're doing? Yeah, I think there's a natural crossover from a lot of the audio content as we're on a podcast that is recording video. Right. Um, you see people like Joe Rogan who, you know, have been, regardless of how you feel about the content and substance of his podcast, like early on, Joe Rogan was a pioneer in podcasting and YouTubing, right? Like he had his Spotify podcast and his Spotify deal. And he also had YouTube as another platform to 10x his reach, right? And there's a kind of slightly different audience who maybe listens to him on Spotify versus the people who listen to him on YouTube. So people who are thinking about YouTube as like an audio brand as well, like how many times do you put a YouTube video on in the background and just listen to it like audio? A lot of people do, um, in addition to kind of more produced content. So there's, I think, just a lot of opportunity, especially in the audio space, to think about that crossover to podcasting, from radio to podcasting, podcasting to YouTube, and then also kind of looking at what you know conservatives have built around YouTube and PragerU as a place for developing more video kind of based content, educational content on issues is something that I think progressives have been pretty far behind on. And Stephanie, it's just been so great to talk to you today. And we can't wait, continue to keep up with your work your amazing work. And speaking of your work, where can people keep up with your work? Yeah, um, we are equis.us and equis spelled E-Q-U-I-S is our website. All of our research and other reports and findings can be found there. We're similarly navigating the transition on social media that many others, I still have not filed suit mm. against 
whatever Elon Musk's new thing is called, which has a very similar brand to ours. So there might be a trademark fight we might have Mm. at some point. And, you know, we're similarly navigating what social spaces we're going to be occupying, given kind of everything that's happening with whatever it's called X, which happens to be our name in English. Think long and hard before going engaging in litigation with the richest man <laughs> yeah, in the I'm world. I'm totally, so totally that. kidding about so, that. Totally it, kidding about it. But the thought did cross my mind at some point. Might be good branding, good media play. Mm-hmm. Um, so we needed to wrap. I just want to just, well, thank you for joining us, um, Stephanie, but also for the work that you guys are doing. Because you hear, I mean, there's obviously a lot of terrible news in the world today and a lot of reasons for people's concern and pessimism but I really believe that you know what you and your work has been as a leader and what you guys are doing um, in any case is really what among the more inspiring and hopeful pieces of work so I just want to thank you for that in addition to thank you for joining thank us. Thank you Steve. Great. Thank you Charlene. Thank you Steve. I appreciate that so much. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for a quality check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.